you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, we are continuing on in our series through the book of Luke. Coming to a familiar teaching section here. If you remember, those of you that were with us last Sunday, I'll remind you, those of you that weren't with us, I'll try to bring you up to speed as to where we were last Sunday. Last Sunday we talked about the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus is unlike anything else. It's totally different and unique. We talked about how Jesus had uh, called the twelve apostles to himself, and then he came down off the mountain after spending all night in prayer, and he um, displayed the power of his kingdom through healing, and then through also casting out demons. And so he was there as everyone was around him and performing these miracles, and he was announcing the the inbreaking, if you will, of the kingdom on earth, that now that he is here, the kingdom is coming. And there is a, a day still to come when the kingdom will be here in its fullness. It's not here yet, but there is a sense in which the kingdom is here and now because of the work of Jesus. So the healing of the sick, the casting out of, of demons, announces that Jesus soon is going to throw down death and the devil through his death and resurrection, that those that they will be defeated through the cross and through the resurrection, but also that there's a day coming when death will finally be no more and when Satan will finally be cast into the lake of fire, never to bother God's people again. And that's the kingdom in its fullness. But it is here now because of what Jesus has accomplished. And we see this as he comes and we see it it's showing up. We see it even in the calling of the twelve, that, that this is echoing the, the calling of the twelve tribes. Of, from Israel, that, that God is creating a new people, a, a new man, something totally different, this new group of people that the kingdom is coming. And as Jesus now descends off the mountain, he had been there praying, and he comes down to a level place on the mountain, just almost, if you can envision, like Moses coming off Mount Sinai. And as Jesus comes down, he comes to bring a new law, a new statement that, that fulfills the old law and actually that, that kind of drills down into the Ten Commandments and into the rest of the law and says this is what it's really all about. This is God's heart for his people. And this is what I want you to understand. In the Sermon on the Mount here in Luke, or as it's often called, the Sermon on the Plain gets at that. There's a lot of similarities. If, you, if you've if you read Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, there's so many similarities between that. And, and the Sermon on the Plain here in Matthew, or in, in Luke chapter 6, and it's as if Luke is either, he's either giving an abbreviated version of that sermon, um, which he very well could be doing, he's giving this, kind of picking out what he wants to communicate, or it could be that, that these teachings were just a part of Jesus' whole ministry. If, it, if, if the Sermon on the Mount is core, then we would think that, that he didn't say these things just once. That he probably said, the, the Beatitudes and, and loving your enemies, that that was something that, that came up in his teaching a lot. Not only so that everyone would hear it, but also so that in the mind of his apostles and his disciples, it would it would sink down and they would remember it. And so as we read um, something like Matthew, Matthew is writing that, I would think, in part from memory, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus had spoken that so often. And so here we have this this teaching. Uh, and it's it's directed to his disciples. We notice that there. Uh, we'll see that as we as we read it. It's it's for his disciples. It's for his followers. This is a message about. This is not a message about how to gain salvation. Uh, this is not um, 
the things that you need to do to make God happy with you, but rather these are instructions and encouragements for those that have already surrendered their lives to Jesus. So the words of this sermon, I just want to be very clear at the beginning, are not meant um, to show you how to gain eternal life. If you want to seek salvation by trying to do everything that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount or here in the Sermon on the Plain, then you'll be as frustrated as you would be if you tried to gain salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of the laws of God, the purpose even here in part is to show us that we can't do it. That we cannot keep God's law perfectly, but that we need someone to do it for us. And that the hope that we have is that a Savior has come, that Jesus has come, that we need the perfect Son of God to give us His perfection. That He has died for our imperfection, the fact that we could not be perfect. That He has taken the penalty of God on our behalf that he has risen again so that one day we can live with him in a perfect paradise in the new heavens and in the, in the new earth. If you haven't done that, if you haven't put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, then that's the place to start. That's the only message that you need to hear this morning, is that the only way you will be blessed by God is if you put your faith in Christ alone and cast yourself on him. But if you have, and I'm assuming many of us have, that we put our faith in Christ, then how should we live? What should we do? What are the values that are, should be at the core of who we are? And I think that's really what Jesus is getting at here, is he's getting at the core values of his kingdom. And here, right at the beginning, right at the, the very top, he starts with these things we call the Beatitudes. And what he proclaims is shocking. He shockingly says, what the world despises, Jesus esteems. What the world despises, Jesus esteems. I think that's the main idea that we really get here. This foundational teaching, Jesus announces that everything everything that the world looks down on and, and derides and disparages and, and mocks and, and scorns and despises, everything that the world hates, Jesus regards and honors and values and esteems. That all that the world exalts and respects and loves, Jesus rejects and he ridicules. What the world despises, Jesus esteems. And I think this is a message for us because as we walk through life, it's easy for us to just get a little confused as to what is really, truly important and where God's blessings truly come from. You know, we may hear our friends or our co-workers talking about their lives, and we begin to, to envy them. They, maybe they're not followers of Christ, but we see them, and they seem like they are happy, that they are blessed, that they are fortunate. And we say, man, maybe that's where I need to go. Or we watch television, or we read on the Internet, or we, or we pick up magazines, and we see all the beautiful people. And all the beautiful people live this certain kind of life, and we think, wow, they must be really, truly happy. And that's what I want. I want to be healthy and wealthy and smart like them, and have all the things that they have. We strive after what's often called the American dream, that we would have all of these things. I remember when I was, the show was off the air, but there was this show called, I never really watched it too much, but everyone knew it for some reason, called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. And Robin Leach would come on every week, and he would take you to some famous person's home and show you how beautiful their home was. And everyone would look at this and say, wow, aren't they fortunate, aren't they? Blessed, And sometimes we just start to get confused as to who is truly blessed. How do I know the blessings of God in my life? And there are people that will preach a gospel that says, that is how you know the blessings of God in your life. If you do have all the cars, and you do have all the houses, and you do have all the money, and you do have health and wealth 
that that is the blessed life. And I think that Jesus comes against that. He says what the world despises, Jesus esteems, and even the opposite, what the world esteems and loves, Jesus despises and rejects. So I want to remind us this morning, Luke 6 comes and it reminds us what true blessedness looks like. We have to be reminded of this because it can be so confusing. Let's read together. Luke chapter 6, and just for context, let me begin in verse 17, but we'll focus on verses 20 through 26. It says in verse 17 of Luke 6, And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, so from everywhere, who came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So remember, Jesus is coming down off the mountain to a certain degree, and he's on this level place. He's called the apostles to himself. He's performed all these miracles of healing and, and exorcism. And now the, the crowd is, is gathering around him, and they're waiting. They, they want to hear, what's he going to say? What? What beautiful, grace-filled words are going to come from Jesus' lips? And as, as he begins, he cries out to this, this, this crowd that is probably hushed, waiting to hear what he's going to say. And the first thing that he says is this, Hail to the poor, to the hungry, to the broken, and to the hated. That's his, the first point of his message. Hail to the poor, to the broken, to the hungry, and to the hated. These are the people that are truly blessed. And it's almost as if it's not separate groups. It's if, if you just want to lump those together, I think that's we're going to try to take these all together there rather than separate them out. But it's as if Jesus is saying, blessed are the, the poor, hungry, mourning, hated ones. These are the people that are blessed. This group of, of people, those that the world despises, Jesus says, are truly blessed. Blessed. That, that's, that's one of the key words here, isn't it? It's kind of hard to capture the meaning of, of that word. It carries this idea of having, having received the favor and the blessing of God so that, that you're filled with joy and with happiness and satisfaction. So we might say it some different ways. Let me just say it some different ways to maybe get the idea. How fortunate are you who are poor? Blessed by God are you who are hungry? Oh, the happiness of you who mourn. How privileged are you who are hated? And again, hail to those who are hungry 
and poor and broken and hated. That's what Jesus is saying. And I think we need to let those words be shocking. Uh, let, let them be strange to you. You know, we've heard them so many times that they don't seem strange. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Blessed are the poor and the people that are weeping and crying, the people that are hungry, the people that are persecuted. These are people that are blessed. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why are these people considered blessed in the kingdom of God? Because it could seem a bit harsh for Jesus to say this, couldn't it? Think about the poor. So Jesus is saying that if you are in poverty, you are blessed. So those in America and those around the world who are, are homeless and live off the charity of, other, charity of others, these are the people that are really blessed. That if someone comes to you and asks for money because they don't have anyone, you should look at them and say, you are blessed because you are poor. Or think about the hungry. Think about those that go to bed with empty stomachs or those that dig through trash to find food. Is Jesus saying that they are blessed? People that are crying, people that have lost loved ones, people whose dreams have been shattered in their lives, he says, you are blessed. People that are persecuted, people that are hated, those that suffer for the name of Jesus, who are put in jail or who are tortured or who are ostracized by their family, these people are blessed. Is that is that what Jesus is saying? Because that sounds a little bit heartless, doesn't it? I think it's supposed to be shocking. Because people in these situations don't typically feel blessed. <laughs> But I think what Jesus is, is getting at primarily is, is in spiritual terms. It's not those who have no money, but it's, it's spiritual poverty. And the way that we get this is, is so much because Matthew is very helpful. Matthew is, is kind of a commentary on Luke 6, and he helps us get at what, it, what Luke and, and what Jesus is really saying. It, it could be, some say that, that Luke, in fact, is, is almost more word for word with what Jesus said, and that Matthew is, is kind of more thought for thought, saying this is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the, the poor. It could be that he said it both ways at different times for different audiences. But we also know that Luke has this strong emphasis on the poor and the disenfranchised, and so I think he's really hammering in on that. But why are they blessed? Remember, that's our question. Why Why is Jesus saying that this group of people is blessed? I think the first thing is, he says they're blessed because they see and feel their need. They're blessed because they see and they feel their need. Think about the poor. Matthew calls them the poor in spirit. It's those who see their spiritual poverty. It's those who, who come to Jesus, if it, as it were, with, with their pockets turned out. They've got nothing. They, they are spiritually bankrupt. They sing the song that we sang this morning. Nothing in my hands I bring. Why are they bringing nothing in their hands? Because they don't have anything to bring. Spiritual poverty, poor in spirit. It may be that that they do have little of this world's goods. That maybe they truly are poor. And we've seen that that, that those who are poor very often are more ready to come to Jesus because they realize they don't have anything. And that could be part of it. But there could be someone that is middle class or is rich that is poor in spirit that says, I don't have anything to bring to God. And this is the first step to knowing God, isn't it? This is the first step in salvation, is to understand that you are spiritually poor, that we have a deep need of a Savior, that that we need Christ. I've shared this before, but I just remember my days as a camp counselor, and summertime brings it back, but sitting down with some kids who 
had had responded to a, a message at this church camp and, and wanted, uh, you know, to to profess faith in Christ, to, to know Jesus as their Savior. And I would begin and say, have you ever done anything wrong? Say, nope, never done anything wrong. <laughs> have you ever hurt your brother or your sister? Nope, never done at that point, I say, well, this conversation's over, because the first step in coming to Christ is to say, I, I am poor, I have nothing to offer, I am a sinner. And apart from such poverty of spirit, we don't see our need for a Savior, we will not bow our knee in confession and brokenness. And so, I would say, if you are a Christian this morning, Jesus is saying, if you, if you have come, and, and Jesus has opened your eyes to see your sin, and to recognize your need of the Savior then you are blessed. You are blessed by God for having been able to see that God has given you eyes to see your sin. He's given you a heart to feel brokenness for your sin. And that's a gift of God that we have felt our lostness. We are blessed. What about those that are hungry? Those that hunger now are also blessed. Matthew says it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's those who long for holiness. It's those whose spiritual stomachs, if you were, are, are growling for, as Jesus says in, in John 4, the, the, the food of doing the will of his Father. It's those that, that long to do what Christ does. That It's, it's the food of, of walking in the ways of God. I think the question is, do we long for for holiness, do we long for holiness like we long for lunch when we feel, when we start to smell the the pork from downstairs? You know, is that how we long to be like Jesus? Do we long for holiness in that way? As our stomach does it growl to be filled with righteousness, or have we spoiled our appetite? Have we spoiled our appetite with with sin and with pleasures of this world in different ways, such that we don't really long for righteousness because we're satisfied with with lesser things we always talk about that at our house we call it scrounging before dinner kids start to get hungry and the cereal boxes end up underneath the table and they're pulling out handfuls and shoving it in their mouths and they then it comes time to eat dinner and they're not hungry because they filled their stomachs and i think so often we fill our stomachs with the wrong things so we don't long for holiness like we should we should hunger for jesus who's the bread of life and if we do, we are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Isn't that strange? Blessed are those who weep. It's those who mourn and mourn over their sin. Those who see their sin, they're not, they're not indifferent to it, but they're grieved that God's heart is grieved. They're grieved that God's name is defiled by their sin. It's those who weep over indwelling sin still in their lives. Do we mourn over our sin that way? Do we look at our sin and do we, do we hate it? Do we weep over it in our personal lives? Do we mourn over the sin of our society? Do we look around us and say, and, and are saddened by it? Think about the events of this past week with the, all the, the news around the Defense of Marriage Act and the, the decisions of the Supreme Court. I think very often we get angry. I think anger is a right response sometimes to sin, but do we are we grieved over it? Do we mourn? Do we mourn over the sin of our friends and family as we see them in a downward spiral? Does it does it grieve our hearts? I think that sin very often is kind of a joke in our society, quite literally a joke. Um, most most comedies, movies, or television shows, it, what we're to laugh at very often is is sin. 
and we get sucked into that, we start to laugh at sin. It's very difficult to mourn over sin when we just spent two hours laughing at the sin of others. I can remember a very awkward situation one time, and Andrea was there, maybe she'll remember this, but someone had showed a, a YouTube video, and it was of someone who was who was drunk, and the effects of what was going on to them. And he thought this was hilarious. Uh, unfortunately, he was with we, we were we were believers, and we watched this person, and we were just filled with sadness at it, at the way that this this man had thrown his life down the tubes because of of his addiction. Do we mourn for sin like that, or do we just laugh at it? I think sometimes we do. We we get we get caught up into not weeping but laughing over sin. We need to be careful of that. We need to be those that that mourn over our sin, that weep. We should be like Isaiah, that when we see it, we cry out, say, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That that should be our response to sin, those who mourn for sin. And then there's those that are hated for Christ's sake. Notice that it's not those that are hated because they're mean spirit, or because they're unkind, or because they're obnoxious. (laughs) It's they're hated for Christ's sake, on account of the Son of Man is the way that it says it. He piles up some phrases, they hate you. They exclude you, they, they keep you out of their groups, they revile you, they make fun of you, they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. We've all felt that, being ostracized by people not being able to participate in their jokes or their activities or different things, and we are spurned because of our faith in Christ. And Jesus says you are blessed. In fact, he says you should rejoice. <laughs> you should leap for joy when you are hated by others. Because they we would know our need of him. We would know our need of his strength, our know our need of his help. So so why are the the poor, hungry, mourning, persecuted ones blessed? Because they see their need. We are those things. We have seen our need of Christ and that is that is blessing because there's so many that walk through life and do not they, they do not think that they need a savior. But if our eyes have been opened to our poverty, to our sin, to our need, then we are blessed. The second thing I would say as to why they are blessed that I think Jesus is getting at is because, because they have found true satisfaction and salvation. Why are they blessed? Because they have found true satisfaction and salvation. That's, that's the opposite of each of these, the, the second half of each one. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed because right now you have the kingdom of heaven, that you are seated in the heavenlies. You are blessed because you have come in repentance and faith, and therefore you are a part of the kingdom of heaven, and you receive those blessings. Remember, the kingdom is now, and it is not yet. And the Beatitudes say, if we are like this, we receive the blessings now and to come, that we understand the fullness of the kingdom, a part of the kingdom now, that we know God's kindness to us and we have the hope of it in the future. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. There's an emphasis here, if you notice in verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry when? Now. Blessed are you who weep? Now. Which the emphasis is that there's something to come. That right now you might be hungry. You might feel a hunger for righteousness that's never satisfied. And you you are not walking in the way that you want to, but there will come a day when you will be satisfied, when we will know him even as we are known, and we will be like Christ 
fully and finally. And we have that hope of a new body and of being new resurrected individuals that struggle with sin no more. That is the hope that we have. Blessed are you who weep now, that we weep over our sin. But there will come a day when we will laugh because sin will be no more. There will be joy because Satan will be cast down fully and finally. And we will face no more temptation. That our flesh will no longer hound us, but we will know the fullness of following Christ and never sinning. And blessed are you when people hate you on account of the Son of Man. We should rejoice. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Hebrews says that those that are persecuted in this way are those of whom the world is not worthy. That, that even if we face hardship now, there is a reward to come in heaven. Not only is there a reward, but we're in good company, right? For so their fathers did to the prophets. We shouldn't be surprised. This is how they treated the prophets. The prophets who spoke the truth, not the false prophets, but the one who said what is true, they were despised and they were rejected. And so we should not be surprised when that happens. Because if we if we are the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the hated, then we have found true satisfaction. It's not that we never laugh here on earth. Hopefully we laugh. That, that we enjoy life as a blessing from God. But we also mourn over our sin. We're not always hated, but there are times when we are. So we have joy now, we have true satisfaction, and we have a hope for the future. 1 Corinthians 15.19 says that if we had hope for this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But we don't have hope just for this life. We do have hope for this life. We have hope for a life to come. So hail to those who are poor, hungry, and broken, and hated. But how sad for the rich, the fool, the laughing, and the popular. How sad. How sad for the rich, the fool, the laughing, and the popular. Isn't that funny? Rich, fool, laughing, popular. That's what we want to be, isn't it? I'd like to be rich. I'd like to always have good food to eat. I'd like to always be laughing. And I would like everyone to like me. I think that that's, that's the cry of our hearts so often in our city. This is what we want, of course. Why wouldn't we want those things? And so it's, it should strike us as odd that Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich. Not a word we use too often. Woe. He's saying, how unfortunate. How unfortunate for you who are rich. They think they're fortunate, and Jesus says, that's unfortunate. How sad it is for you who are always laughing. What a disadvantage for you whose stomachs are always full. What a pain that you are so popular. That's what Jesus is, is saying. Why? Why are these folks unfortunate? Because they do not see and feel their need. Because they don't see and feel their need. The rich, they don't see any need in their lives for Christ. They, they, are, they have everything that they need. We go to people and we say, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing to say, but we say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And they say, well, so do I. My life is pretty wonderful as it is. Did you see my big house? Look at my three cars. I've got another house over here. So, you know, people that are rich do not feel a need. 
First Timothy 6.17 offers this warning. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The warning there for the rich is, if you have a lot, then you become proud and you set your hope on your riches. Jesus has a lot to say, and we're going to see it throughout the book of Luke, so we won't belabor the point here. A lot to say to the rich. And it's not that riches are bad, but that riches start to get a hold of our hearts and we say, I don't really have a need for anything else. They're unfortunate because they do not see or feel their need. The fool feel no need to pursue righteousness. They're filled with sin. They're filled with, with the things that they have. There's no, there's no hunger there. I'm reminded of, of this passage in Luke 16. You remember the rich man and Lazarus? Think about this, thinking about that how sad for the fool. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. And then listen to this. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Interesting, the reversal there. They felt no, he felt no need in this life, but now he does feel need. How unfortunate for those who are laughing, for those who do not see sin, who do not grieve over sin, who do not care at all about the sin in their lives, because there will be a day when they will, when they will see their sin, and when Christ will bring judgment on sin. How unfortunate that they do not see it now. How unfortunate for those who are popular, for those who are well-liked, they find praise from others, but in the end they will not find favor from God. They are like the false prophets. And the false prophets just said what they thought everyone wanted to hear. They weren't worried about the truth. They just said, well, this is what will get me in good with the people, and so I'll tell them what they want to hear. Everyone spoke well of them, but they just spoke falsehood. Why are they unfortunate? Because they don't see their need. Why are they unfortunate? Because they have only found temporary satisfaction. As opposed to those that we looked at at the beginning, those that are blessed, these that, that are unfortunate, it's a, they are unfortunate because they have only found temporary satisfaction. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You've already had it. You get it all now, and you won't get it later. I think about when Jesus says about the Pharisees, you fast and you and you try to make it look like you're fasting so that you receive your praise from men and that's all the praise you're getting. You're not going to get praise from me. And here it's it's the rich. You have received your consolation. You can have joy now. Enjoy it. Because when death comes, it's over. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. You will long to have the righteousness of Christ, but you will not be able to have it. You will be hungry later. Woe to you who laugh now, but you will mourn and weep later. You will see your sin and you will mourn and weep. And woe to you 
when people speak well of you. But when God says, depart from me, you are a worker of iniquity. Why are they unfortunate? Because they look pretty fortunate right now, don't they? They're rich, full, laughing, loved by everyone. But they don't see their need. And so their satisfaction is only in this life. And in the life to come, they will not have it. I'm reminded of, of Psalm 73 where the psalmist talks about those that are that are evil, and it seems like everything is going well for them. And then midway through the psalm he says, but then I went to the house of the Lord, and I saw their end. So often we get confused, don't we? What is true blessedness? How do I know that God is truly blessing me, that God favors me, that God loves me? Is it because I'm rich and full and have no need of anything? No, it's it's because I'm poor. It's hungry. Because I've wept over my sin, because I'm spurned for the sake of his name, because I've seen my need. If we have seen our need, we've been able to turn by faith to Christ, then we are blessed. And if we have hope not just for this life, but for the life to come, then we are blessed. So I encourage you, if maybe you came in today with a skewed idea of what blessing was, that we would walk out thinking differently. But I also want us to walk out thinking about Christ. How do these Beatitudes point us to Jesus? Is Jesus calling us to do something that he didn't do? I think that's what's amazing here. Is Christ says, blessed are the poor and the hungry and the mourning and the hated. And that's who he was. He's not calling us to do and to be something that he himself was not. Think about it. Jesus was poor. He was literally poor. We saw in the infancy narrative how his his parents were poor. That he was born in in a little backwards town and nobody knew who he was. He grew up as a as a carpenter and then his entire life he lives as a nomad of sorts. He has no place to lay his head, he says. He was poor. And he was poor in spirit. He was hungry. We saw that his temptation in the wilderness and throughout his life as he fasted, and not only that voluntary hunger, but but that he felt hunger. He mourned, he wept, he wept over the sin of Jerusalem. He, he saw Jerusalem that had rejected him. He wept over them. He, he wept at Lazarus's graveside, not simply because his friend had died, but because he saw the effects of sin. He saw death and he hated it. He wept over it. And he himself was hated. He was spurned as as evil, he was despised and rejected. He was hated. But in all this, we think about Second Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was rich and he humbled himself became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross, so that we might know true riches. And in Jesus humbling himself, God says, therefore, I have exalted him. This is the the hope that we have, that because Jesus has humbled himself to make a way for us, and now he is exalted, so too, if we humble ourselves, come by faith in Christ, that there will be a time when we are exalted 
as well. And then I think about Isaiah 53. Again, such familiar words, but but so applicable to who Jesus was and what he has done for us. Think about Christ here. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Everyone despised him. He was not one that the world looked at and said, oh, we esteem him well. No, he was despised and rejected by men. But because of that, he is able to, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet even we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So Jesus doesn't call us to do something that he himself did not do. He doesn't say, go outside the camp and bear reproach and shame and suffering. He says, come to me outside the camp and bear my reproach. I have faced it for you. And because of that, because Jesus was poor, because he was hungry, because he mourned, because he faced the hatred of other people, because of that, we can know true riches. We can know the fullness of of following Christ, of being satisfied fully and completely. That we can laugh and rejoice because a day is coming when sin will be gone. And we can suffer, and we can suffer well knowing that we are bearing the reproach of Christ and that we have a reward that is coming and we have good company with us in the prophets. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we confess that we want to be rich. We want to be full. We want to not have to worry about sin. We want everyone to like us. And yet, Lord, that's not the way of true blessing. Lord, forgive us. Change our hearts and our minds to see that. Lord, we get so caught up in, in this world that, that is so temporary, we neglect to see what true blessedness is. Blessing that will last for all eternity. Lord, help us not to seek the things that are now, but that are to come. That we would not store up our, tre- our treasure here on earth, where moth and rust cause it to decay, and where thieves can break in and steal it. Lord, because no one can steal the hope we have in Christ. No one can steal the salvation that you've given us. That is where our hope is. That is where our joy is. That's where our blessedness is, Lord. So we give you thanks. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for helping us to see our sin. For opening our eyes to the fact that we are poor and blind and naked and without hope in this world. 
but forgive us for thinking that we are rich and well-fed. Lord, and thank you. Thank you that our hope is not only in this life, but it is in the life to come. That as we stand and we experience the blessings of this kingdom now, we don't even know what's coming, God. How wonderful it will be when you return and when all is made right, when the kingdom is here and we are fully satisfied and we know your salvation fully and completely and we are glorified with you. Thank you for the hope of eternal, blessed life. We give you thanks, Jesus. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.